if we have a history of creating a theology uh, that carves out space for the most vulnerable in our society, why don't why aren't we doing that for queer folks? That was Luther Young, and you're listening to Out Loud. We're back for the second half of season two, and I'm your host, Greg Thompson. On this episode, Luther and I discuss Black liberation theology and reimagining scripture, as well as the difficulties in coming out to his family and being seen as a fully participating member of his church. Luther grew up in South Carolina with a love of music that brought him to Nashville to study audio engineering at Belmont University. While he has continued to perform and sing and play, He is also a recent graduate of Vanderbilt Divinity School with his master's in divinity. Luther was raised Pentecostal and is now part of the Disciples of Christ. He identifies as bisexual and goes by the gender pronouns he, him, his. All of this and more on this week's episode of Out Loud. Now, a quick disclaimer before we get going. As some of you know, Out Loud began airing in May of this year, and after about three episodes, we took a little hiatus. What you'll be listening to on this episode and for the rest of this season are interviews that were conducted in May of 2018. Overall, the content is just as wonderful as it was then, but you may get a few references to it being May 2018. So don't be alarmed. Everything's fine. It still makes sense. It should still be relevant in the month that we're in. I promise. And now on with the show featuring Luther Young. So thanks for joining us, Luther. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Yeah. Um, We'll start off by, I want to ask you what um, the term bisexual means to you and how you came to identify with that. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and that, gosh, that was a journey, a years-long journey uh, sure. to arrive at that <laughs> um, that self-identity. Um, so for a number of reasons, and I don't know how, how much time we'll have to get into it, but um, so I identify as bisexual, which means I'm attracted to both male-identified and female-identified persons. Um, the term or identity bisexual can be problematic for both the uh, folks who are straight and then also for the LGBTQ community um, because um, there's concern that folks who are bisexual or are perpetuating binaries that could... Um, further disenfranchise trans and non-binary folks. Um, and then there's also a concern for whether or not folks who are bisexual are attracted to people who are non-gender conforming or gender non-conforming or folks who are trans, um, which creates a whole layer of, of, of identity issues even within the community. Um, but for myself personally, um, it took me a while to arrive at the realization that I am bisexual. Um, and it was difficult, like kind of growing up in my, you know, younger and teenage years, um, because, you know, growing up um, in in church, you would hear that, you know, being gay is a choice and you, you should just stop. And I internalized that for a while because I kind of could because I was attracted to both men or am attracted to both men and women. And so I was like, well, I could just choose to not be with or, you know, have romantic relationships or feelings for male identified folks and then just choose to be with women. And I personally could because I'm bisexual. Mm. Um, And it took me, it wasn't until, you know, maybe just a few years ago. um, And I was like, wait, I'm attracted to both. I'm bisexual 
that's okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So how does, um, you know, kind of getting to the, back to the terminology a bit, like, um, how does, um, how do you, how do you separate being bisexual from, um, from identifying, I guess, more broadly as like, as queer, Mm -hmm. how do you, um, how do you see the differences between those two or are there differences? Yeah, that's a very good question. I've, uh, taken on the identity of both queer and, and bisexual and I'll use them depending on my mood, um, or, or my setting, but I'll, I, I, I like the term queer because it, it allows me to um, take on an identity that is a bit ambiguous. Um, and, and I really resonate with that, too, um, kind of uh, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier in being that there are um, kind of negative connotations with bisexuality in kind of all communities um, for a number of reasons. Um, and so wanting to claim the identity of bisexual in order to kind of queer what that means, um, both for the LGBTQ community, but also for the, you know, kind of society at large. Um, And I personally don't see, you know, bisexuality as um, a further um, marginalizing of trans and and non-binary folks, although I do understand how the very term bisexual itself <laughs> perpetuates a binary, right. which is complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes I just use queer because it's a little bit easier, I guess. Yeah, yeah. What um, you mentioned um, your your family and everything kind of growing up. What what was what was your faith like growing up? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. Yeah, you mentioned uh, earlier in the bio. I grew up Pentecostal, which um is not queer friendly at all. Mm. (laughs) Um, And while I didn't hear a whole lot of um, homophobic like rhetoric and sermons, like in the particular um, faith communities that I was a part of, um, it was definitely there. Um, You know, was, I grew up in, um, particularly the Pentecostal holiness tradition. So um, we weren't allowed to do anything essentially except go to church. (laughs) We weren't allowed to like go to the movies or, you know, the skating rink or, you know, everything was very strict. Um, We abide by particular guidelines. We wear certain things. We speak a certain way. Um, We conduct ourselves a certain way at all times at church, at home, um, in, in the grocery stores. Um, so it's a very, very strict code of conduct. Um, and I, f- I mean, I find that to be powerful. I still resonate with a lot of that today. Um, a lot of it I find problematic, but I think that there's something about, um, claiming an identity of, of, of being holy, like God is holy and, and choosing to, um, choosing to per- choosing to exempt oneself from particular activities um, as a sign of one's faithfulness to God. I think that there's power in that. Um, I think the part where I um, divide is where we condemn people to hell because they don't dress the way that we dress or speak the way that we speak or can, you know, conduct themselves in the way that I conduct myself. I think that my personal um, 
journey with God and my personal commitment with God should be just that. And I think that that's what makes it special, not conforming to a prescribed um, kind of cookie cutter model of Christianity and holiness. Did you find yourself conflicted as far as like kind of following the rules or um, wanting to go to church yourself? Yeah. So I've always loved church sometimes to a fault. Um, (laughs) And I think for me, what's been important is figuring out how to reconcile the discrepancies um, or how to navigate um, my love for church in conjunction with what I perceive to be things that were not congruous. So um, saying that, okay, we say these things in church. This is what we we say we believe. These are the things that we um, adhere to and espouse, but they don't seem to align with reality or um, they don't seem to bring forth like the healing and restoration that I think it should be, or it claims to. Um, And that's something that I started to wrestle with kind of in my later teenage years. And then when I got off to college and like, okay, well, how can I reconcile this religion that I've known my whole life? How can I reconcile this, these, this faith and these teachings with what I'm seeing in kind of like the day to day lives of people not just outside the church, but also folks in the church. Like, what does it mean to say that, you know, um, a Christian woman should remain with um, a not so great uh, husband simply because she should or because God doesn't like divorce or because it'll be her responsibility to convert him and make him a Christian. And, you know, I would hear those things and was like, "Uh, I don't, I don't think that's what God wants. That just doesn't seem right. Um, That's just one example in trying to like reconcile. Okay. I see what we're trying to do here, but I don't think this is working. Yeah. I think that is the struggle growing up is, is, is deciding kind of, okay, where do I stand on this for sure? So then how was it for you um, coming out and into this church community um, and into this family? Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, and kind of maybe breaking one of the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, it was a, it's a difficult thing and it wasn't, you know, when I left home and moved to Nashville to go to school, um, I was very much aware of my, um, my, you know, romantic desires and, and what it was I was attracted to. Um, I still hadn't quite, um, affirmed myself in my own identity at that point. Um, that wouldn't come until, till years later. And so, you know, ever since that time, even before coming to divinity school, there was a lot of, I think maybe even before moving to Nashville, even when I was a teenager, um, began doing a lot of research on, you know, okay, well, what does the Bible really say? I guess I was just a young theologian in the making and didn't know it <laughs> at the time. <laughs> but, you know, hey, that was when the internet was starting to get popular um, and people actually had internet in their homes, like yeah. um, not dial-up. That's when we got to, you know, real DSL, <laughs> high-speed internet. <laughs> <Woo-hoo>. <laughs> and I could do research and yeah, be absolutely. able to, like, look up scriptures and not just, like, you know, 
not have to rely on the you know family king james bible gold leaf trimmed pages words of christ in red um you know version of the bible that we all had and that was the only thing i had access to mm. but now i have the internet i can look up other translations and i could start to do uh i didn't know it at the time but bib- biblical exegesis right good fancy dip school word for you know exploration and um looking at what was happening in that time period mm-hmm. and um what what do these words actually mean like we have you know the king james version which is kind of old english but what did these words mean in like their original languages and understanding and learning that wait although this word says this in english that's not actually quite what it may mean in you know greek or hebrew um and like starting to do that research and doing that over the years and um i think getting to there were a couple of things that helped me in my identity formation. One was meeting my now spouse um, and hearing kind of his story um, helped me to solidify mine. And I think hearing his story um, helped me also to um, arrive and realize my identity as being bisexual because our stories were a little bit different. Um, My, my spouse um, is a gay man and he says that he's, always known that he was gay ever since kindergarten he just knew that he liked other boys um and just that's always been a thing's never been attracted to women it's just um and like hearing that and contrasting that a little bit with my story and like being attracted to male identified and female identified folks and it kind of helped me to put that in context um because at the time I think I was still like, oh, well, this is a choice, right? Because people can, and he helped me to realize like, no, there is nothing that you or anyone can do that can make me <laughs> be attracted to, you know, female identified persons. Um, and then, you know, that kind of a light bulb went off for me like, oh, I see. Mm. Um, so that was a huge part of that. And then also meeting other, um, so like like him, meeting other people queer identified people and hearing their stories and how they're similar to mine or different from mine and how people, um, other people have arrived at their own, um, identity kind of realizations, um, helped me to really kind of stop and pause and think about, okay, who am I? Um, and not just that, but also who am I in relation to my faith? Um, and so coming to divinity school really kind of helped, um, solidify, um, that for me, because me- meeting other queer people of faith and how they have reconciled or are reconciling or working to reconcile their sexual and spiritual identities was really helpful for me. Um, and so to actually answer the question you asked me, uh, <laughs> um, putting that in the context of kind of my, my faith context growing up in my family, and it was it was difficult Um they hadn't they haven't done the the biblical uh theological exploration that i've done um and so you know they're still going off of that gold leaf bound king james words of christ in red bible that they know um and haven't um, done kind of that deeper digging and so it was difficult um because what no one wants to think that you know, people that you love, your family, 
um, your pastor, other ministers have been lying to your whole, your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that can be painful when you realize like, Oh, the thing, some of the things that I've been kind of taught and told are inaccurate or, you know, there are maybe some holes that we can poke here and there to say like, Oh, that's not quite what this is. That's hard to, to that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, cause you don't want to think that your beloved pastor that baptized you sold you a, a false bill of goods. Um, so that was hard for me and knowing also that it's difficult for them knowing that, you know, the good boy who grew up in the church and sang in the children's choir and Mm -hmm. became the minister of music and went off to college and is doing really great things has now like disappointed us because he's gay. Um, and understanding how difficult that is for, um, my family and, and people that helped raise me. It was it's, it's, it was just difficult all around. Um, yeah. So I want to talk a bit about um, your musical background. Sure. It seems like um, music and faith are intertwined for you. Um, and that's something that um, I understand you've brought to your studies in a way at mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. Um, and that, that was something you incorporated into one of your final projects. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So... Um, Gosh, that's a big one. I came, I came here and um, um, did the Master of Divinity program, but also the Certificate in Religion and the Arts in Contemporary Culture. Um, so weaving um, in the arts, performing arts with uh, theology um, and, and, and ministry. And so like my final project kind of weaves together um, sexuality in the church, but also, um, elements of a performance. And one of the reasons being is because, you know, the stereotype that the church musician and and the choir director are always gay. Um, I don't think it's far from the truth to be honest, but (laughs) I think that, um, in the paper, I kind of nod toward, um, in that paper and in a couple of other papers, I think that there's something powerful, um, in the correlation between sensuality and worship. And I feel that um, there's something to this fact that, um, or I don't know if I can say fact, but there's something to this assumption and um, assumption that kind of tends to be true that um, queer identified people tend to be more musically inclined or the musically inclined tend to be queer um (laughs) one way or the other one way or the other (laughs) i think that there's something to that though because i feel like people who are uh in tune with their sexuality and have experienced the level of kind of uh, sexual and sensual liberation that Mm -hmm. uh, queer identified folks have also then allow themselves um kind of like this added deeper connection to the divine um i my theology is that sensuality and spirituality are inextricably linked um, in that one's um, sexuality and spirituality or one's sexuality and sensuality is kind of like the most intimate relationship one can have with another human and one's spirituality is the most one's most intimate connection they can have with the divine. So I think that there's like this direct parallel between the two. Um, I won't get off into that whole thing, I love um, it. but, <laughs> but I think that there's something to 
um, to that fact. And so I talk a little bit about uh, a lot, actually, in my final kind of thesis about how uh, churches will affirm or not affirm. They will accept um, gay men. I'm specifically talking about the black church in in the paper. Mm -hmm. They accept gay men. Um, for their service, particularly for like performance and music and singing and dance and theater and those sorts of things, but not affirm their identities. Um, and I argue that you can't do that because the the two are inextricably linked. You have to, if you're going to accept a person and their their gift, you also need to accept their sexuality as a gift from God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for myself as a as a musician. Um, and a minister that was something that was very important for me to kind of articulate Um, because after um, you know I served a congregation a couple of years ago and I was on the music staff there I was also um, um, on the ministerial staff um, was the director of young adult ministries um, and also director of of media Um, so I, I did a lot there um, just a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that, that happened was, you know, um, essentially after, after coming out, it was, a we want you to still be here and like do music, but we like, won't let you preach or like do any, have any sort of ministerial leadership. Um, and so like, that was just a no go for me. Um, because I think that it's, it's time out for us to, um, to continue to typecast gay people as you're only worth the gifts that you bring that we enjoy. So you're, you're only worth your musical gifts um, that make us feel good and allow us to have a good worship service because the music's great. Um, but we're not going to um, affirm you as someone that's valuable enough to stand to proclaim God's word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's been a no go for me. And after leaving that church, I technically haven't, um, assumed another, um, job as either a music director or a musician or a music minister at another congregation since, um, for that very reason uh, that I don't want to, um, further perpetuate the, Oh, you can come and play music, but that's it. But. Yeah, what you said about including sexuality as as part of this view of the gifts we bring to the table is mm-hmm. is so key because that that's a language that works for people as mm-hmm. far as gifts and talents, um, showing up to to church, being a part of this community, sharing part of who you are with one another, um, and your sexuality is part of your identity. It's part of this gift that you've received from God Mm -hmm. and that you are now bringing in your entire being to Mm -hmm. this community. I think that's really powerful. I agree. Mm. So uh, I want to talk a bit about your thesis, Mm -hmm. um, which is on the intersections of race and sexuality, specifically in the black church Mm -hmm. and how homophobia is antithetical to liberation theology. Yeah. We're getting into that a little bit. Um, Before we dive into kind of, what your findings were and, and, and all of that. Can you um, take a moment to explain liberation theology and its impact on the black church movement? Yeah, sure. Um, gosh, and this is kind of almost uh, timely or untimely uh, I know. with the, you know, um, recent passing of Dr. James Cone, who's, you know, considered the father of, of black liberation theology. 
um, in really wanting to, I think many will consider him the founder of liberation theology, but I, I like to particularly say black liberation theology because there are a number of other liberation theologies out there that I okay. don't want to discredit. So such such as, you know, Latin and Latin X liberation theology and, and um, you know, kind of womanist theology that came a little bit later and, and queer theology that came a little bit later. Um, and so, yeah, black liberation theology kind of arose to challenge dominant narratives and dominant um particularly Eurocentric readings of scripture. Um, and so like one of the kind of major tropes of black liberation theology is the Exodus narrative, right? And how um, folks uh, who were enslaved in Egypt were brought uh, out of slavery by God. And, you know, which is why folks like, you know, Harriet Tubman's considered like the black Moses, right? So like all of that kind mm -hmm. of goes in, in line with this, this idea of, of, Black liberation theology and saying that, um, particularly for for James Cone, that you know God stands on the side of the of the oppressed um, in the person of Jesus and really kind of looking at um, the ministry of Jesus. Um, I think um, Professor uh, A. J. Levine talks about this at, at Vanderbilt a lot with um, how. Um, Jesus stood with those who were marginalized um, time and time again. Jesus hung out with the folks in society that people didn't want to hang with. He hung with the, with the quote unquote sinners and, and the lowest of the low and using um, uh, like the parable of, of the quote good Samaritan, right. And mm -hmm. kind of demonstrating that um, the people who, we consider to be like the outcasts and, and who are on the, on the margins of society. Um, not only are they, are they people, they're good people. Um, and you may need them one day. How then did liberation theology then lead to black church movement? Mm, yeah. What does that look like today? I guess. Excuse me. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, a pivotal moment would be, um, when Richard Allen and others um, left the the Methodist Church and started the African Methodist Episcopal Church, um, back in in the 19th century, when um, you know that the story goes that um, you know back in those times, black folks and white folks worshipped together, kinda. Uh, there was, you know, specific seating <laughs> for for black folks, even during, you know, during slavery and even after slavery, you know, uh, they could sit in the balconies where they were kind of far away, um, out of sight, out of mind um, kind of thing. But, you know, uh, Richard Allen and, 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 and Reverend Jones and some others were trying to pray. And um, I, I believe there were some um, some white folks that wanted to uh, wanted their spot. And they asked, you know, uh, Richard Allen if he would get up and, and move and allow, um, you know, these nice white folks to come and have their space. And he was like, hey, you know, can I can I finish my prayer first? And they were like, no, move. Um, and so he and uh, the other black congregants just did a mass exodus. And, you know, that's kind of how um, the kind of organized black church um, started, mm -hmm. even during, during slavery. Um, you know, the black church existed kind of as an escape from the um, the hardships of 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 their kind of 
physical reality. Like they were enslaved individuals subjected to um, physical violence, sexual abuse, um, mental uh, abuse, the name calling, just the living in constant fear. Um, and so being able to escape to uh, these, these churches um, late at night when they weren't supposed to be organizing or they would, you know, go to these praise houses or, or hush harbors and, um, be able to worship in their own way in ways that um, were familiar to them. Um, it, it wasn't just about getting together and um, offering praise to a, to a divine being, but it was also a place to escape heart, uh, hardship. And also it was a place of catharsis where they could release and relieve um, all of the pain and, 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 and agony that they had to hold in all day because they, you know, couldn't cry out in the fields and they couldn't, you know, express how they were really feel while they were working. But in, in these moments when they're with their with their kindred uh, and in the presence of God, they can just let it all out, um, which is why um, I, I love the the. Uh, the emotion and expressiveness of a lot of black church contexts and just being able to get it all out um, before having to unfortunately go back to the reality of um, uh, a society that doesn't see you as the most valuable person. Right. And so like, that's what black liberation theology um, tried to do in saying that, you know, although dominant kind of Christianity says, you know, slaves obey your masters and um black people are second second class citizens and um this is what it means to be a good christian and this is the right way to worship um and um and it's interesting like the exodus narrative right that was the very narrative that the colonists used in in their conquests of you know west west western expansion and saying like you know God is leading us out of the oppressive hand of, of, of England and, and we are now going to possess our promised land in the new world and God is going to give us dominion and we're going to slay those giants, I guess, you know, the indigenous folks. Um, and God's going to, you know, give us, that was the narrative they used. And so like liberation, right. black liberation theology came and said, mm, actually, no, here's how we're going to interpret this, um, this text in a way that's, that's life giving. It's a great example of scripture being reinterpreted mm -hmm. over time in different communities. Yeah. Being repurposed. Um, so you mentioned gathering for in response to hardship and gathering us as, as a catharsis. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't sound all too different from why you may want to gather today. Mm -hmm. What has um, what has the black church meant to you? Yeah, and your faith. It's very much the kind of the same thing. Um, it's like one can express whatever it is they're feeling, whether it's overwhelming gratitude because um, they've been blessed with, um, you know, uh, a new job or a circumstance that they thought was going to go very, very terribly, but it went another way. Um, and, you know, you can express that overwhelming gratitude um, and then have a community celebrate with you. That's incredibly powerful. Um, but even uh, on the other hand, you know, you could be going through a really difficult time and you can express in that moment like the pain that you're feeling and saying, like, I need help um, because 
this is a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And then again, to have a community, right, rally behind you and afford you that space uh, to be able to do that, right? Because, you know, for black folks, historically speaking, like we, we, we couldn't really, or we didn't feel as though we could show that vulnerability in larger context, right? Because we have to be, we have to show that we're tough and we're disciplined and we can't let kind of, you know, dominant society see us, um, see us being weak, see us in pain. We don't let them see, you know, we can't let them see us crying because we have to show that we're, we're strong and, and, and we're resilient. So, you know, the church was kind of that space where you could um, both celebrate or, you know, get help, um, whether it be spiritual or emotional or even, you know, financial and physical, right? So um, you go to the church and say, hey, look, you know, things just didn't work out um, this week or, you know, um, one of the um, the head of, of the house, whether it be a parent got laid off because of, you know, the boss didn't like them or what have you. Uh, we're struggling and the church can rally behind them and say, look, we've got you. We're not, we're going to make sure you don't go hungry um, here. Let us help you with your electricity bill this month while you're trying to do. And then that's kind of what the church is, has been. It's been that community of, 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 of hope and help. Mm. Um, and sometimes we forget the help part. <laughs> I think in recent years, we've been doing a lot of hope giving, but not help giving. Um, and, I think that that misses kind of like the roots of the black church as, as both. What do you mean by that? Like, where are you missing on the help sign? Yeah. So it's, it's one thing to, you know, preach an inspiring message about, you know, God will provide. Um, but if we know that, um, a family is homeless, like God has, God will provide, but God has also given us resources to be able to provide too. Um, and so giving, hope in saying that things can get better but also when we can actually be the the body of christ right the actual tangible body of god to be able to enact god's will in the world um and i mean that's what the what the black church of ode did and still largely does but um i argue in in my thesis not to the same degree uh, as we as we once used to, um, it's it's kind of something that's ancillary and it's not central to our ministries nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, I think the average church budgets, you know, roughly ten percent of their of their budget to outreach and missions. Right, uh, it's kind of a um, an average, right? And so, um, actually dedicating tangible resources to helping people. Um, as we can see, is just not as central as it once was. Mm-hmm. And also, what I'm hearing too is is kind of that tension, that ongoing tension throughout many faith communities of faith and works. Mm-hmm. When do you when do you offer it up, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. pray that this is the situation will get better? Mm-hmm. And then when, yeah, and then when do you actually step in and try mm-hmm. to do something about it? And where and how do you balance those two? You know. Indeed. Um, and, 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 and on the flip side, how do you remember to pray when you've been doing everything you can and just yes. throwing options at, at it and, and nothing's working? Um, Definitely. Yeah. So, um, going back to your thesis then, where, where, ha- where did your research kind of lead you, um, with, uh, with that, 
Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that helped form that for me is reading a couple of years ago, a book by uh, Horace Griffin, who actually did his PhD at Vanderbilt. Um, he wrote a book called uh, Their Own Receive Them Not. And uh, in that book, he kind of um, explains the complexities of homophobia in the black church. Mm. Um, and he makes a very great uh, parallel between the oppression of um LGBTQ folks in the black church with the oppression of black folks by whites. Um, And he makes a very compelling argument that um, a lot of the same um, kind of arguments and rhetoric that white folks use to justify slavery and oppression of black people is the same rhetoric that the black church now adopts to justify oppression of gay and lesbian, bisexual and trans folks. Um, And that was kind of like the linchpin for me to be able to do um, my thesis and saying that, wait, if we have a history of creating a theology uh, that carves out space for the most vulnerable in our society, why don't, why aren't we doing that for queer folks? Um, And really interrogating and investigating why that is right so at the very heart of um kind of the formation of the black church and black liberation theology was creating a safe space for people that don't have a place elsewhere why aren't we doing that for queer folks uh another linchpin of of that was um reimagining um theology and reinterpreting scripture in ways that affirm um marginalized folks uh, and are life-giving why aren't we doing that for queer folks and it's like we can we've done it we've done it time and time again and we're doing it now which is why we have black liberation theology why aren't we why are we not doing that for for queer folks and so really parsing out like those arguments of you know it's it's not natural uh, well, that's the same thing that white folks said about black people. It's like, oh, well, that's they're they're not human. They're, you know, brutes. Um, um, those anti, like anti miscegenation laws that you know prohibited uh, interracial relationships or interracial marriage, saying like that's not natural. That's just not God's will. Um, that's kind of like the same argument that's used against you know queer folks. Um, and it's this kind of othering. That exactly we see in scripture too sometimes exactly between communities in early christianity exactly and it's like you know we use the skills of of biblical exegesis um and examining the scriptures looking at context looking you know doing word studies of what words mean um and saying like hmm maybe that's not quite what you know this biblical author meant when they said that or maybe they meant that but we're going to reimagine this for today's context like we do that time and time again um thinking about how we've done that for black people in general and like how you know more and more over the past several decades black churches are now affirming women in ministry right so you know passages have been used like women should be silent and i do not give you know women authority to or women should not have authority over other men or women can't teach other men right and how like that you know it's, it's in scripture um but we've used um, used our tools to say like, mm, 
okay, let's look at what these words mean. Let's look at what was happening in that context. Uh, let's look at patriarchy. You know what? We don't really live like that anymore. We can ordain women. We can call women to preach. Women are just as qualified um, as men to preach. And more and more congregations are using those tools of um, exploring scriptures and reimagining and reinterpreting them in ways that affirm groups of people. And it's like, here again, why aren't we doing that for queer folks um, in the same way? So what what tools do do churches need then to for this to happen? Yeah, I think first and foremost, um, recognizing that queer folks are a part of our community. Uh, we're human. We're here. We've always been here. We're not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> every church. We're here. We're queer. <laughs> yes, we're here. We're queer. We're here to stay. Um, and I'm I'm willing to bet that every congregation in America that has more than three people probably has someone that's queer in it. Mm. Um, and so it's not something that we we can escape. Um, and so that that's first and foremost. For, first and foremost. Two, recognizing that LGBTQ folks are beloved children of God. Um, and these are things that folks can do regardless of their, you know, kind of stance on scripture and whether or not one thinks that, you know, same-sex attraction is right or wrong. Like, at, thi at this kind of juncture, that's, that's, that's not even important. It's like recognizing people for who they are. Like, you're a person and you matter. Right. You can do that whether you agree with my sexual orientation or not. Um, so I think that that's kind of a primary thing. And then taking time to get to know people um, and their stories, because I feel like there are so many misconceptions about like queer people um, that get perpetuated, um, you know, that, um, you know, gay men are just all promiscuous and they're spreading STDs, like, you know, like that kind of narrative, like, no. False. <laughs> <laughs> No, or, um, you know, all of the crazy assumptions that you may or may not have heard about, like, your sex life and what you're into and what you're not into. And people just have these crazy assumptions about what I do in the bedroom mm -hmm. um, that is not really anyone's concern unless you're my spouse. Um, right. Or, I mean, if you really want to know, you could ask. I wouldn't advise that, but. This is not like, a great starting point, but it's really not. But let, let's just not make assumptions about what what people are are doing and into and, you know, really getting taking the time to understand people's story. Another thing is the assumption that, you know, people are gay because they were, you know, molested as a child. And that was a um, that's a common belief. And while that is something that does happen, unfortunately, that's not everyone's story. And even if it is the case that doesn't necessarily explain their sexual orientation. Um, and so just a lot of things that, a lot of assumptions that people make, um, I would encourage people to take the time to develop authentic relationships with folks. And I think for me in coming out, that was a, a huge part in helping people to re reconcile that and saying like, well, wait a minute, this is, this is Luther. I've known him for X number of years. He's, you know, hopefully they think, uh, a great person, uh, a, a wonderful musician, a, a, a great minister and teacher. Um, I respect him. Okay, but now I'm aware of his sexual orientation. And so, if, you know, well, I can't just, I know that I know him and I know he's a good person. So then 
it's kind of forcing people to reconcile that, well, what I've thought about gay people now, I have like my friend, my relative, my cousin or nephew or, or, you know, this person that I know um, now is now forcing me to think about um, LGBTQ people in another way. Right. And I think that's so, I think that's so key. I, I think that temptation is definitely there, especially if it's, you know, in a coming out post online and you don't get the chance to really talk with everyone. Um, I, before I came out online, I, I tried to, um, I tried to chat with the people closest to me in my life, friends, family, closest in proximity for the most part, Mm -hmm. people that I could see, like that I could sit with one-on-one face-to-face at a coffee shop Mm -hmm. over dinner and talk to them. And so the conversation wasn't just an announcement of I'm gay. Mm -hmm. And then whoever decides to comment back and that's the end of the exchange. Mm -hmm. It was this ongoing conversation of just like my life and their life. And I think to your point that like, this is, these are all the things I know about this person that are still true. Mm -hmm. And this is just another part, another thing I know about them. Right. And it's not, it doesn't have to change your whole viewpoint of them. Mm -hmm. But the challenge, like you mentioned before, is that this is an identity that, that we come to understand through our whole lifetime and, um, and to expect that understanding of the people in our lives, like right away Mm -hmm. is not, um, is 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 a tall order <laughs> yeah for sure is yeah. we have to be willing to do that right um we have to be willing to want to have conversations um and sometimes that doesn't happen it's like you know someone says they're gay and it's just like full stop um you know we treat sometimes gay right. people like they have leprosy or something like they just have to be <laughs> excommunicated altogether like that's just the yeah. the end of it um but yeah, we definitely have to be willing to to have those conversations, um, regardless of whatever we're we're feeling. Yeah. So in the fall, you'll be going to Ohio State to start your PhD in sociology. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you hope to be uh, studying there and pursuing? What's next for you? Yeah. So um, continuing a lot of the research that I've been doing. Um, but from a you know the perspective of of social sciences, so one of the things that I discovered after um, leaving a previous congregation um, after coming out was that um, you know that particular congregation the people there are wonderful um, they're great largely supportive um, which was slightly shocking I mean I even saw people who um, made a kind of change in in their mindset like before they were just like incredibly homophobic but then after i came out they were just like i know you you're okay so maybe i should change how i'm I'm looking at that i mean i i taught a series on uh uh right around interestingly enough around the time that i came out i was teaching or helping to teach a bible study series on um, the bible and homosexuality and it was interesting that, you know, like I'm thinking of one parishioner in particular in one congregate in one um, conversation. Uh, she was just like, it's just wrong. I actually have a uh, I think she said she had a daughter who um, was um, same gender loving and she just couldn't reconcile that. And she was just like, I don't know um, 
how to deal with this. And I, I just don't want to have to explain to my grandkids why their aunt is gay. Um, and that was kind of like how she felt about it. And then after I came out um, and then after some more Bible studies, you know, she was just like, you know, I've had some time to think. And I'm not saying it's because I came out that may have had something to do with it. It may not have. But um, after uh, but after my coming out and after kind of doing the Bible study after a few more weeks, she said, you know, I realized what I said a few weeks ago was wrong. Um, and she actually apologized and said that she was going to, you know, work on her relationship with her daughter. And I thought that that was incredibly powerful. Um, and I think that that to me was a was a testament of what we can do when we, one, take the time to actually uh, examine scriptures and, and do it in ways that are responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, right. So, um, myself and the pastor uh, of that congregation teaching that Bible study was important. And then two sharing of stories. Um, so not just doing the biblical work of it, but actually listening to people. I think that that's powerful and that in and of itself can begin to transform minds because I received overwhelming support from that congregation. And, um, but, um, I think that by and large, they didn't have the resources to deal with someone in the congregation, not just someone coming out. Cause I was, I, I assure you, I'm not, I was not the only queer person of the church. Uh, there are other gay lesbian people, some openly, some not, um, trans identified folks. Like I was not, it was a larger congregation. So okay. it's, I was not the only one, <laughs> but I was the only openly queer clergy person there. Okay. Um, and I think that that made a little bit of a difference and um, they just did not know how to deal with that. They, they were absolutely clueless. And I think that as a result, um, all parties involved got hurt and the situation was just handled poorly. Um, and when I went to look for resources to be able for, for congregations or even just communities and organizations in general to deal with, uh, similar situations, there are none. Um, and so it was just like, someone's got to develop these resources. It may as well be me. Um, so I hope to, uh, in the sociology degree, do the legwork of um, not just listening to the stories of, of queer folks, particularly black queer folks, um, but also painting a clearer picture of how homophobia impacts, negatively impacts queer folks, but also the entire community. Um, and that's something that I argued in my thesis is that homophobia negatively impacts every, like it been, it literally benefits no one uh, in the long run. I mean, it, it, it exists to perpetuate um, a, a status quo and to keep, some people at the top and to marginalize others. But apart from that, there's no benefit. Mm. Um, queer people, um, I, I, I'm sure, don't enjoy being marginalized. Um, and then also, too, thinking of, like, families, right? So, like, um, thinking of, like, my own family. My family's suffering um, because they can't reconcile. Like, you know, they have this idea that, oh, my gosh, our family member is gay 
he's bound to go to hell and, and that's hurtful like literally this idea like homophobia benefits no one like no one wins um and so understanding wanting to really do the research of of uh delving into like the mental uh and emotional uh impact of homophobia on communities uh, looking at like suicide rates and mm-hmm. um health disparities and how um homophobia uh, impacts one's uh, social mobility, right? So how does it impact economics? Um, are gay black people earning less than their counterparts? Is it harder for them to secure employment? Um, just really looking at kind of all of the impacts of it to be able to say like, this is what our theology, uh, our homophobic theology that we espouse, this is how it negatively impacts our communities. Um, in a number of ways and then begin to develop resources for um, for for queer folks, for families, for communities and, and organize religious organizations, faith communities to be able to deal responsibly um, with, you know, welcoming and affirming queer folks in our communities. Yeah, that's fantastic. I hope so. <laughs> I'm glad someone's doing that work. What, um, in the meantime, are there any, based on all this research that you've been doing, um, do you recommend any kind of resources, any starting points for people to any books, anything that you have found really helpful? Yeah. I, so I mentioned Horace Griffin's Their Own Receive Them Not. Mm-hmm. That is just a really powerful book, um, in, um, kind of explaining the the pitfalls of of homophobia particularly for queer people of color um kelly brown douglas pretty much anything she writes uh i love but um sexuality in the black church um is a resource that um i recommend i refer to it often um and then um e patrick johnson wrote a book called sweet tea gay men um is it gay black men in the south i think is the subtitle um it's a fantastic book so he pretty much went around um various cities in the south interviewing gay black men and allowing them to kind of share their stories so um, some a, a good chunk of the book is just kind of transcripts from these interviews um, that I found so helpful. And so there's a, a chapter in the book about, um, you know, gay men in, in the black church and kind of like sharing their experiences of of growing up in church. And that was really what informed me writing my thesis was reading that that chapter of that book. And that's what sparked my interest in uh, hearing how they've navigated the church or, or not and how what's been helpful, what's also been harmful and whether or not those people are um affiliated with church today and if so in what capacity um that's great yeah um last question Mm -hmm. um with all that we've talked about in mind where have you found a place that you feel like you can authentically be you yeah that's a great question um i think for starters, uh, at home with my spouse, I'm, I'm really grateful to him to, um, for accepting me and flaws and all, um, as, as me and encouraging me, um, to be 
just authentically me. Um, and I think one of the things that I've been doing here lately is just kind of forging my own path <laughs> and just kind of walking into every situation saying like, I am bringing my full self everywhere that I go. Um, and you can do with that what you will. Um, but I've, after coming out, it was difficult. I kind of went into, um, a little bit of seclusion, um, disconnected with, uh, the band that I was playing with disconnected, you know, I had left the, the faith community and didn't reconnect with another one for a while. And, um, wasn't on social media much, just really kind of kept to myself, um, for, for quite a while. Um, and, you know, sought, um, um, you know, started seeing a therapist and, you know, really took time to, um, work on myself and to, and to build up myself, uh, cause that was an incredibly hard and difficult thing to go through with, you know, the church, then with family and, and, and all of that. Um, and since that time, really taking time to, you know, build up myself and, um, build up a confidence to just bring my full self to any, any environment and just kind of say, you know what, if you don't like it, whatever. Um, but I just refuse to check a part of my identity when I walk into a door. Um, and I refuse to be intimidated by, um, anyone who has negative opinions or or feelings about who I am, which can be difficult. Um, it, it can lead to confrontation at times. Um, some folks are just unwilling, but I think that it's important for me to be authentically me as much as possible and to be visible um, in order to kind of forge a path and pave the way for other um, young queer folks who may who may come behind me um, so that it'll be a little bit easier for someone else. That's great. Well, thank you for taking the time to chat. Thank you. It's been I really appreciate good. it. Thank you so much to Luther Young for joining us on this episode. To learn more about Luther, check out his website at lutheryoung.com, or just follow the link in our show notes. And speaking of show notes, we've included some resources down there that Luther mentioned during our interview. You can access those by pulling up the description of this episode on your podcasting app. Or if that's too complicated, you can also find Luther's interview on the episode guide at our website, outloudstories.com. While you're there, you may notice a few shiny new buttons. First off, if you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe on our website or on your podcasting app. Um, On our website, this will take you to Apple Podcasts where you can not only subscribe, but also leave a review, which will help others find our show in a immensely significant way. This helps a ton. Um, Also, while you're there, you'll see uh, a donate button on our website. Producing the show and getting these interviews to you is no small feat and is part of why we had to take a little bit of a break. So if you like what you're hearing and are able to leave us a donation on our website, it will directly support the time and the resources and effort that goes into making each of these episodes. And if you want to just hear more from us, um, get notifications when new episodes drop, all that good stuff, be sure to join our mailing list. There's a button for that on the website now too. A special thanks to Meg McKellen for helping edit this week's episode. I'm Greg Thompson, your host and producer, and together we painstakingly listen to every minute of these interviews and work to craft some kind of a story out of it. And it's tough work, but we love it, and we hope it makes sense and that you love it too. On the show next week, we're going to hear from Lee Cato. 
That's all for now. We'll be back again in two weeks. As always, consider sharing the show with someone you know as a way to start a meaningful conversation. Until next time, I'm your host, Greg Thompson. Peace.